This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. New England is known for its charming towns, comforting foods, and of course its historical contributions. But the Down East region can have a dark side. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and on my weekly podcast, Dark Down East, I dig into both decades-old and modern-day cases from my home state of Maine and the greater New England area. In each episode of Dark Down East, I seek insight from law enforcement officials, family members, and other loved ones who are both deeply familiar with the cases and the individuals at the heart of them. Join me as I unveil intricacies of these stories that are often overlooked, honor the grit of those searching for justice, and shine a light on cases that you aren't hearing on other podcasts. Listen to Dark Down East now, wherever you're listening. Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance in the Empty Frames Studios in Wormtown. Lance, how are you today? Doing very well. It feels good to be here in the newly named Empty Frames Studio, filling those frames, as they say. That's right. And uh, today we have an excellent conversation with a good buddy of ours, Jordan Bonaparte from the Nighttime Podcast. Friend of the show. What a predicament he's gotten himself into with this case involving a thwarted shooting at a Halifax mall back in 2015. Yeah, so he does a series uh, with incarcerated prisoner Lindsay Suvanarath, who is an American from Illinois, who planned a mass shooting uh, for Valentine's Day in 2015 with her boyfriend that she had never met, had only known online, and she flew to Halifax, Nova Scotia, on February 12th, 2015, to, uh, to commit this act a couple days later with her boyfriend, who ended up killing himself when she was arrested when the plane landed due to an anonymous tip. Yeah, their plan, as Jordan lays out, is very flawed. It's very thrown together. It was Lindsay, her boyfriend James, and another person who was technically the driver. They had this really kind of half-assed plan to go and shoot up the mall with a with a shotgun, like a single bullet, like a, a single fire shotgun. The crazy part about it was Jordan was actually in the mall that day. Yeah, he was. And uh, so because of that, before he ever started his podcast, the Nighttime Podcast, he wrote letters to Lindsay in prison and just kind of trying to get into her mindset. And then he went on to start his podcast. And so this relationship with her through letter writing had been developing for years that no one knew. And I'm, I'm kind of upset that we didn't know about it. Like, he didn't tell us. That's kind of insulting to me. It was like he kept it 
kind of in the in the closet. He yeah, kept he, it away. Yeah, what a jerk. Um, his back pocket. Yeah. <laughs> typical, <laughs> yeah, typical Canadian. We don't have anything in our back pockets, for Christ's sake. But anyway, uh, this is a really interesting series, and he speaks to her on the phone, and you can hear in her own voice how callous and cold she is and how she wanted to kill people and what she wanted to say to them. And so we actually play a couple clips from her and his conversations with her on his show. Yeah, it's really chilling the first time hearing her voice. Really chilling to hear somebody with no remorse and just literally saying, I have no remorse for what I did. And she's in prison. So she's been in prison and had time to think about it. And she still talks to Jordan and says, no, I have I, I have no empathy for people like that. And she'll be coming back to America at some point, probably when she's around 50, Lance, or maybe a little earlier. So, yeah, not something to look forward to, I guess. Um, but make sure you check out this uh, this series. It's great. Check out Jordan's show at nighttimepodcast.com. And Jordan dedicated this series with Lindsay Suvanarath to the anonymous tipster. And we just want to give that anonymous tipster a shout out here because that person could have prevented a lot of death. Absolutely. So that person is not mentioned. No one knows that person's name. But like you said, the result of this person's anonymous tip, who knows how many lives it, it, could, it could have saved. Seriously. So it's, it's a really uh, interesting case, an interesting person that he speaks to, and it is very important to get tips off your chest. If you've got a tip like that that you're holding on to, it is paramount. You submit that tip to the police, Crime Stoppers, wherever you must to uh, get that off your chest. And so, Lance, before we throw it to Jordan and this interview, we just want to mention our entire catalog of Crawl Space is available on Stitcher Premium. So check out stitcherpremium.com. Use promo code FRAMES, and you get a free month. After that, it's $4.99. But you can get the entire catalog of Crawl Space, which we began back in February of 2017, Lance. Yep, we just celebrated our podversary. And you don't just get Crawl Space, you get the Missing More Murray creator commentary, and you get a lot of other content that Stitcher puts out, True Crime Garage, a lot of comedy shows. So it's not just us. You'll get your money's worth for four ninety nine a month. Speaking of True Crime Garage, we are flying to Ohio next week, Lance, to uh, to talk to those guys. That's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to appear on their show on Stitcher Premium called Off the Record. So look forward to that And thank you very much for listening to this show and this interview. Check out links in the show notes and follow us on Twitter at CrawlSpacePod. Thank you. Jordan Bonaparte, welcome back to Crawl Space. It's it's been a few months or something. And uh, how are you? I'm good, man. And it's yeah, it's been a few months on Crawl Space, but I was with you on Missing Maura Murray maybe three months ago. That's right. That is right. And you had a new ceiling put in. Look at that. That's a gold ceiling. And my puppy's barking. Uh, yeah, solid gold ceiling. Wow. So where do you get that? Uh, the paint store. Nice. <laughs> So, Jordan, you had a uh, pretty compelling series you recently did on your podcast, The Nighttime Podcast, and you spoke to a woman named Lindsay Suvanarath. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Yeah, it was um, easily one of the most unique experiences I've had in my time podcasting. uh, People who listen to your show may not be familiar with Lindsay Suvanarath, but where I am in Nova Scotia and even across Canada... She's been seen for the last five years or so almost as a bit of a, 
I guess, a boogie woman. Um, people have referred to her as Halifax's most unwanted visitor. But basically, she's a uh, a young woman from America. She's from Illinois. She met a, an online boyfriend on a website that caters to people who uh, are fascinated with Columbine. They're called Columbiners. So she met a guy on that site, and their relationship, as it started, very quickly incorporated plans to commit a mass murder. What they chose for their location of the mass murder was going to be the shopping mall, the food court of the shopping mall near my house. But thanks to an anonymous tip, she was arrested at the airport on her way here, and her online boyfriend uh, shot himself as police closed in. So the the attack, or the planned attack, people call it the Valentine's Day Massacre. Uh, that's kind of what the press dubbed it here. And she's been in prison in Canada you know, since Valentine's Day of 2015 when this started. But the only death was her boyfriend. That's correct. There was no actual mass shooting at this shopping mall. You're exactly right. Yeah, her boy, her 19-year-old boyfriend, uh, when the anonymous tip came in that uh, a girl from the United States was on the way to Halifax to commit a, uh, a mass shooting, police um, went towards the airport to get her and went towards his house, his house to get him. When they had his house surrounded um, during that period of time, he used one of the guns he was going to bring to the mall and shot himself in his house. So you spoke with Lindsay uh, herself. And how did this, uh, this series of inter- interviews come about? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, a long story that really started shortly after her arrest. And, and just to put it in context, like what kind of made this series on, on my podcast, at least to me, special is Lindsay has not said a word publicly. She had even in, in the courtroom, she she maybe said yes or no, you know, two or three times, but she hasn't spoke to the press and her motivation and kind of what makes her tick has largely been been a mystery. But anyway, to back it up, really what happened is this this all went down in 2015, around Valentine's Day. And, you know, in, in Nova Scotia in February, there's not a lot to do with a young kid. And my son was, my oldest son was like two at the time. So I spent pretty much like every second day just kind of walking around the mall, pushing a stroller with a coffee. So I was actually at the mall the day that this all went down. Um... And, you know, the mall was evacuated because they didn't the police didn't know really what was going on. And as the news broke on on, um, you know, the local press that uh, a mass shooting by these Columbine obsessed. Actually, the way the the police put it was they they referred to them as a, a group of murderous misfits. Um, so when when news broke that this shooting was foiled. I was just like drawn to the TV, you know, and anything written about the case, trying to find out, you know, was it serious? What were they planning to do? Why were they choosing, you know, the the Halifax Shopping Center, which is the mall not too far from me? And really, like a lot of major stories in the news, I just wasn't getting the answers I wanted. Again, like why were they doing this? And, you know, what brought them, what brought this girl from Illinois to Canada to do this? So I did a lot of research online, uh, learning about her history, because, again, this crime largely started on the Internet, and they left quite a few disturbing footprints. Still, when I was unable to get the questions answered, I just wrote her a letter. And I've never done that before. I wrote her a letter not as a podcaster or as a journalist or, you know, really, I wrote to her as as somebody who could have been a victim of her crime, as a member of the community she planned to shoot innocent people in, as a parent of a kid who potentially could have gotten shot if you know if this all had have happened the way she planned. And I basically just wrote to her 
with something that I kind of envisioned as almost like a victim impact statement. I just kind of told her who I was, how this crime affected me, how it made me, you know, be a more leery of crowds. And, you know, I, I just kind of told her how I felt and I didn't expect to hear back from her. I thought, you know, best case scenario is she would read it and realize that what she did actually affected somebody. But about two or three months later, oddly enough, she decided to write back to me and, I don't know why she chose to write to me, but she wrote me a big, long letter. And that was, again, shortly after her arrest, maybe two or three months later. And from that point on, over the last three or four years, we kind of kept like a kind of a pen pal sort of thing going where we wrote back and forth about life and, you know, what's been in the news and just random things. I'll just get a letter from her that's just a random thing and I'll write back. But anyway, um, not too long ago, she had mentioned being interested in sharing her story and, you know, and she was kind of asking if I could find a journalist or somebody who may be interested. And what I told her, I was like, if you ever want to do it, like you can just come on my podcast and say whatever you decide you want to say. And sure enough, she, she had a big distrust of the major media. So she's like, yeah, let's do it on your podcast. So that's kind of how it came about. And I think the the discussion it's it's over i guess a period of it's four it's a four episode long series and she really tells the story from her life leading up to the crime she tells you know without pulling punches warts and all tells the story of the planning and what they were actually going to do and then she tells basically what's happened since her conviction she's actually uh she's actually serving a life sentence now so we just did all these it was about a series of six interviews we did through the tel- the prison telephone system so it was it was bizarre the whole thing Knowing that you're communicating with her for years and then you do the interview, is this something that you told your family and what did they think about that? Yeah, well, my, um, my, I kind of, I didn't tell too many people about it just because, and I'm sure you guys get the same thing with when you're interested in true crime, you have like your circle of people you talk to about these sorts of things, but um, my mom, I don't tell her about my true crime interests, <laughs> but my, uh, my wife was, was, she followed the case as well. So she was equally captivated and she was excited that I was going to, you know, learn all the things that I wanted to learn about this, about this story. But again, there's, there's some aspects of this crime and of Lindsay Suvonaroff that are very uncomfortable, uncomfortable for me. The big one being that she's, uh, proud and outspoken neo-nazi um and she talks about her neo-nazi beliefs and the way she sees the world through that that lens the same way you or i would talk about you know getting groceries or you know what the weather's going to be like so there was a lot of that stuff i almost had to compartmentalize it because really to to get to know her and understand what made her tick and how this plot was you know designed and where this all came from I knew I couldn't go into it arguing with her about, you know, race and these sorts of things, because obviously I my deeply held beliefs about, you know, inclusiveness and equality for everybody is very much against, you know, what she believes. So I just had to kind of not bring that up or go there because I knew arguing with those things about those things, but there wasn't going to get me anywhere. So you never told her that you disagreed about any of those things in your letters or in your conversations? Uh, oh, no, I told her right from the beginning I did, but um, it was something that I just said, like, there's no point of even talking about that. Like, you feel the way you feel. I feel completely different. Um, so it was something we just, we never got into. And in the episodes, I made a point to, like, one of the big kind of, one of the 
things that worried me going into the interviews and putting the episodes together is I didn't want the episodes in any way to be a platform for her to share anything that may even slightly resemble hate speech. Um, so we may, I made a point to never really get into the specifics of her beliefs. What I really got into in the episodes is how she formed the beliefs and what kind of led her on the path to becoming, you know, a somebody obsessed with Columbine and a neo-Nazi. Like I wanted to find out how that all came to be, but I didn't want to give her the opportunity to actually spout off on what she believes. So I think um, I think I walked a fine line, but in the end, I'm happy with it. What about the the idea of a mass shooting? Do you support? Is it like the chaos it creates? Or again, you talked about kind of the idea of stirring revolution. What if you had to sum it up? What about a mass shooting to, is appealing to you? Well, the one thing that people should know is that a public massacre is very much an attack on the public itself. Everything else is secondary. It's about this sort of attack on the common people. Not an open attack on one's enemies, but on the people who just sort of blindly support them, people who are complacent, people who, well, some people like to call them sheeple, really. And it's really about just just purifying the world from those who really have not much to contribute to it. When you hear of a victim of a crime or victims of a mass shooting. Although I, I understand that you, you see it as a, like a greater good being created, but inside your, your heart or your soul, like, do you feel sorry for, for people who, who lose their lives or are and are like affected on an, on an individual basis? I really don't feel empathy for them. See, the thing is, when you have the mentality of a mass shooter, you don't really see these people as individuals. You just see them as parts of a whole. When you have this sort of mentality, you pretty much see the world as a giant chessboard where there are pawns that can be sacrificed in the name of something greater. A lot of these people really are just pawns. I mean, what, what do they really have to contribute other than equally unimpressive children? That's, that's really all it is. How did you deal with the inevitable criticism uh, of of the you know that people said that you you aired you allowed her to to speak her uh, beliefs that some people would deem dangerous? I handled it with you know frustration and um, yeah, I guess frustration would be the big one. I found I find and I'm sure you guys uh, are both no stranger to this, but like I, I feel like the bigger criticisms I got were from pe- from people who either didn't even listen to the show. They just heard that this girl was breaking her silence and, you know, they immediately, I guess, had their own assumptions made about what the episode was going to be like and, you know, what was said on it. So I had a lot of criticisms from people who I could tell by their comments never listened. A lot of the criticisms that I had were, it could have been criticisms about this episode or it could have been about true crime in general. Like when, when Lindsay had appeared on the show, the local press covered it 
pretty thoroughly because, it, you know, this is a big story here in Halifax, Nova Scotia, where I am. Um, so I think a lot of people probably saw it in the news and were shocked that there's a podcast out there that's investigating true crime to the extent that they're actually talking to people affected by it or involved in these crimes. So some of the criticisms were was more around like things like, you know, don't you have anything better to do than talking about, you know, crimes and murder and, you know, these sorts of things. Yeah, it sounds like a slippery slope there. How did you manage to ask her certain questions that didn't make it seem like you were condoning what she was doing or condoning her beliefs as a neo-Nazi? Yeah, it it was hard. It was, I tried to keep it conversational and I tried to keep the questions, again, aimed towards what led you down this path rather than asking a question specifically of, you know, what do you believe and why do you feel this way? So just for an example, like the neo-Nazi stuff, uh, I know very little about it. So for me to have an intelligent conversation with someone about the the ideological belief system or anything, I couldn't even get, I, I wouldn't even try to fake that. So my questions were more like, how did uh, a, a seemingly regular girl from an average family in Geneva, Illinois, what led to you, you know, gaining such a strong interest in, you know, the National Socialist or neo-Nazi belief system? So I would just ask something simple like that. She she discussed kind of how she ended up there, but then we cut it off there. I wasn't getting into, you know, why do you feel this way? And, you know, do you not realize that this is wrong? Um, Because again, there's a saying, uh, you don't piss in the wind. I kind of thought me arguing with Lindsay Suvonaroth about race and equality would be equivalent to uh pissing in a strong wind <laughs> yeah because she's she's not reformed right she's still absolutely holding not. those beliefs absolutely and when she was she was sentenced she got a, a, a life sentence and one of the things the the judge mentioned in her sentencing was that she refused to denounce her antisocial beliefs and i believe he was referring specifically to her neo-nazi beliefs and and yeah, and she absolutely doesn't. When you listen to the episode and the interviews with her, she is, I've never heard somebody discuss something so heavy in such a cold way. Whether she's talking about her antisocial beliefs, the neo-Nazism, talking about her interest in Columbine. And when I say interest, I mean she sees the Columbine shooters as role models and people she strives to be like. In fact, she even talks about during the planning, she felt like, the spirits of the Columbine shooters were controlling her and her boyfriend's bodies. And when she talks about that, she doesn't laugh or joke. She's dead serious. She's dead That's serious. What she was believing. Yeah. Completely serious. It's chilling. And absolutely chilling. And when she talks about her the plot to kill people in the mall, again, she she talks about it as if it's not a taboo subject at all. She talks about it in a flat tone, matter of factly, you know, we were going to, I was going to go in the bathroom and get changed, come out and open fire. And, you know, these are the type of people I would target. Like she had no qualms about telling me the story. And it was absolutely terrifying, to be honest. I left most of the strategy to James because again, it was his area. It was, I wasn't familiar with the Halifax shopping center. So his idea was that we go into the food court bathrooms, we change into the clothes we were going to wear, we get our weapons ready, and then we just kind of come out and open fire on the food court. Did you have any plan as far as who you would target or 
what you would say or whatnot? Like, did you have a, a plan in that regard? Hmm. We were just going to shoot pretty much whoever we saw, but we both kind of like had this sort of ideal victim in our heads, people that we would would especially want to kill. James just wanted to, he really, James really wanted to kill middle-aged women, especially those who might have been Christian, those who might have had a family, things like that. And I, there were several different kinds of people I wanted to target. One was maybe anybody who was particularly dysgenic looking. I just have these ideas about eugenics and like what kind of features mean that someone has good genetics versus bad. And I don't know, anybody with like poor looking genetics would just be a target for me. And another thing I was thinking of was, I don't know, maybe shooting some basic bitches and being like, haha, you look fat when you bleed. It's particularly disturbing because she wanted to kill people who were normal people at the mall, like uh, people with their mm-hmm. kids. Um, with some people she described as uh, basic bitches. I think she said she wanted to uh, to shoot someone, shoot a basic bitch, and uh, watch her ble- and call her fat while she bled or something. Yeah, and that was that was one of the more chilling clips. Like I, I had asked her, and I kind of knew she was going. There was an answer to the question, but I said. Did you have like a certain group of people or person you were targeting in this in this attack? And I had known quite a bit about the case because so much of the planning was all done on Facebook between her and her boyfriend through the Facebook Messenger. Um, and I had I have the full logs of their Facebook chat, so I, I knew the answers to a lot of the questions. But when I asked who they'd target, she had told me her boyfriend, this nineteen-year-old guy from Halifax, his plan was to target the average woman he said she said like the type of person who looks like they maybe are christian maybe have kids and have a family that's for whatever reason that's who he wanted to shoot then when she got to who she was planning to target she again brought up like kind of the race thing she said anybody with dysgenic features and i didn't get into what that was i just kind of moved on but then she said and just like what you just said there tim she almost said it in like a sing-songy voice almost as if she was about to laugh she said i had this uh i had this idea of just finding some basic bitch shooting her and standing over saying haha you look fat when you bleed and she said that again like like it was nothing it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Listen to the 48 Hours podcast for shocking murder cases and compelling real-life dramas from one of television's most watched true crime shows. Go behind the scenes of each episode with award-winning CBS News correspondents and producers in Postmortem, a weekly deep dive. Listen to 48 Hours wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, listeners. I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of the podcast Serial Killers. Like many of you, I'm fascinated by the darker side of humanity. 
What causes someone to develop such deadly desires and why they decide to act on them? For the past six years, I've been able to explore these curiosities weekly, tapping into the mental states of the world's most notorious killers, examining their backgrounds and habits, searching for answers. If you haven't had a chance to check out our show, there's truly no better time to dive in. With hundreds of episodes to binge and new ones released weekly, Serial Killers is the perfect podcast for any avid true crime fan. Follow Serial Killers on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. They also called people uh, sheeple, that they just wanted to wipe out these average people because they're just part of this machine or whatever, this like mechanism. And they, they're all, they all march to the same drum and, and mm-hmm. they wanted to basically disrupt the, the, the establishment by, by killing all of these sheeple. Doesn't that strike you as like kind of a, a lazy excuse for wanting to be famous for doing something violent like this? Oh, absolutely. And so much of their planning, like, None of it really makes sense. And when you hear the motivations that they had and what they plan to do, like none of it even fits together. It all seems like this dark, twisted fantasy that two people had that somehow they just decided to set it, set it into motion. Like they had talked, she had talked about, you know, this making this, this grand statement about the world and all that. Yet it's not like she had like suicide notes or manifestos or anything that was going to spread this imaginary message they had. Like really it was, it was almost as if, you know, all the darkness on the internet, racism, Columbine, mass murder, all this odd stuff. It's almost like it just got twisted together in a tornado and, you know, none of it made any sense. It, but at the same time, like what I think the value in hearing this and having her talk is, is it gives you a glimpse into the type of person that does these things. And, you know, these people, they don't make sense, but they're out there and, you know, and they're willing to pick up a gun and walk into a crowded building. Like there's, there's lots of them out there. And Lindsay Suvonaroth isn't totally unique, but what is unique is hearing somebody like that in a regular everyday conversation, telling their story. And I was of course, it's controversial and it's not for everybody, but I was really, I, I with my show, I want to make the kind of thing that I would want to listen to. And this is something I would want to listen to. I just kind of, a part of me wishes, you know, maybe you guys had done it instead of me and I could have just listened and not had to deal with the fallout. <laughs> Jordan, I'm kind of offended that you were talking to her for years and, and we, we didn't know about it. We weren't on your inner circle like that. You, you could you <sighs> pass the lead off like that to us if you want. I should have. Well, it was hot lead. You know, like, uh, and and I'm completely, I'm being completely sincere when I say, like, I I didn't plan this to be anything for my podcast. It started off as, again, me as a member of this community writing to somebody. And in fact, I connected with her before I even started my podcast. I think, yeah, I did. I would have wrote to her in maybe February of fifteen, and I didn't start my podcast until I think like October of fifteen. So, um. And it's just kind of a random thing. Like I would get a letter from her, you know, eight months, and then I wouldn't hear anything, and I'd get another letter, you know, eight months later, and it would be a. She's a a prolific writer of what I think people call like creepy pastas, which are just like short horror stories, and she'll randomly just send send me, you know, this dark and twisted story, and that's kind of how when I say a pen pal type thing, that's really what it was. Randomly she'll send me things. And I think just because she had my address, she felt comfortable doing it. But 
anyway, it was, it's been a bizarre experience and the episodes are, um, some of the most, um, some of the darkest stuff that will ever come out on my podcast. That's for sure. I can't wait to move on to something that's not true crime for the next few episodes. Yeah. It's, it's dark, not because of the, it's dark, not because of anything that they executed, you know, they didn't execute their plan. The only person who died was one of the people who was planning on killing a mass amount of people. It's dark because of her sort of cavalier attitude towards it and the flatness and emotionless comments and tone that she has. It's yeah. it's incredible. I like, when, yeah, Lance, the... when you called her uh, planning or reasons kind of lazy. And Jordan, you said this too. One part, she mentioned Dawn of the Dead. She was like, oh, yeah, I think there's this movie, Dawn of the Dead, that was about uh, consumerism, and uh, and that was that's one of the reasons. Like, it, she sounded like she never even saw the movie, first of all. And, yes, while, while that movie is kind of a take on consumerism, like a satire, like... It's, also, it's a movie about zombies, and they shot it in a mall because it was a cheap location. You're making shit up. Oh, and also she her court appearances, she, I, I, the irony, she was wearing uh, Dolce & Gabbana glasses to all of her <laughs> court appearances. Like I, My opinion, honestly, is they were just kind of almost like throwing things against the wall to see what would fit, what would stick. And it was almost like if somebody just floats, like her boyfriend uh, was the one who was floating the different ideas as to where they do the shootings. And he had first... And this guy seems to be quite the coward. His first idea was he wanted to do it in a hospital. One of the first things we did was start thinking of possible locations. I left most of that up to him because, again, it was it was going to take place in his town. I didn't really know the area because I'd never been there before. So I left, kind of left that up to him. And he kind of threw some ideas out there. One of the ideas he threw out there was a hospital. He liked the idea of being able to shoot and stab patients who are just laying there in their beds. But I kind of said that sounded fun, but I didn't really think that in my heart. I just thought mm, uh, that wouldn't really, there wouldn't really be much point to that. Another place he mentioned was a library. I, I thought that shooting up a library would send the wrong message, and I just didn't want to copy Columbine too closely, so I didn't really go with that one. And he also suggested maybe an elementary school because there was one not too far from where he lived. I didn't want to do that either because I didn't want to send the wrong message. But one location that I ended up agreeing to was a mall, which we all know turned out to be the Halifax Shopping Center. What about the mall uh, to you was was attractive as far as like the message it would send? It was kind of this symbolism of Western decadence and the modern world in general, just the, the idea of this place where people go to consume. It seemed like it seemed like a pro, it would be a protest against capitalism, against consumerism, against greed. I believe it was the film Dawn of the Dead that had zombies attacking a shopping mall, and it was supposed to be like this metaphor for our modern society and how obsessed with consumption it is. So I thought that would be perfect. His first idea was he wanted to do it in a hospital because he thought he was only a small guy. Like, you know, it looks like he was like 90 pounds or something. He thought there would be less chance of resistance. He could just walk bed to bed with a knife and, and get and kill people. Um, when 
Lindsay wasn't into that. He then wanted to do it at an, ele- at an elementary school that's behind his house. She didn't like that idea. He then wanted to do it at a library. She didn't like that. And when he said, what about the mall? That was uh, the idea she went with. And it seems like like you, the, the clip you just referenced there, it was almost like, huh, a mall. You know, there's, and she was almost just like thinking like, what could that mean if we did it at a mall? As opposed to doing it the other way around of having a message and planning it, it was almost like the message was kind of in reaction to this plan. And when we say plan it, one of the things about this this crime is the planning was all about the aesthetic. It was about what are we going to wear? Like they meticulously planned their outfits. They had a playlist of what music that they would want, you know, to represent their attack. They were making art and releasing it online, almost like teasers. She She described making something she saw as almost like a movie poster. And it was like her and her boyfriend's faces. And it said, you know, Valentine's Day, it's going down. And they were releasing things like this to almost like, it was almost like seen as branding or promotion for their for their plot. And they were sharing it amongst their community of like-minded, what people call Columbiners, which is, you know, the subculture of people who are interested in Columbine. But it's, there was very little thought given to, what am I going to say when I come off of an airplane crossing an international border on a one-way ticket with no money, no luggage, you know, other than like a hat with a swastika on it. And that's really what happened. When she showed up at the border services desk, you know, and they're like, what are you doing here? She she didn't know where her boyfriend lived. She knew next to nothing and, again, had no luggage. <laughs> so it's, you know, the whole thing is it's just stupid and pointless and evil but not completely uncommon because a lot of these other like, but for the grace of God and this anonymous tip, who knows what could have happened. At least Ted Kaczynski had a manifesto, the Unabomber. At least he had a manifesto. Since she's been in jail, has there been anything that she's been trying to do to put together as some form of a statement, some form of a, a, a manifesto, for lack of a better word? Has she, has she made an attempt to at least like to show some sort of change? Good question. And the answer is, um, I guess, not not exactly a manifesto, but she did. uh, And she talks about this in the final episode is she completed a novel that's almost like a it almost reminds me of, you know, how OJ did like if I did it, that's kind of like a fictionalized version. She almost did something like that. It's it's this kind of like fictionalized version of her story. It's about like um a guy and a girl who meet online, he's a hacker and she's a beauty blogger and they decide to, you know, commit a mass shooting. So it's in, in even some of the characters dialogue is word for word out of the Facebook chats. So it's almost like she took her story and just added these fantasy elements to it. Uh, and she talks in the episode that she's hoping to have that published. I read some of it. She sent me the first three chapters and I can honestly say like if that got published, there would be protests outside of bookstores because it is that dark and twisted. Yeah, don't promote it now. Yeah, uh, yeah, good point. Is it well-written, though? It is well-written. That's one thing about Lindsay is she um, she graduated from a liberal arts college uh, outside of, it's called Co. I think it's outside of Chicago. She uh, has, she went there for for creative writing um, and she's incredibly well written. If you were if you were into say like um, I, I don't know, like like even just like Stephen King sort of thing, like she writes really really dark twisted stories. And even before this whole plot 
brought her infamy. She was known on some circles for writing really good creepypastas or short stories. And even today, like I know the names of a lot of the stories she wrote. If you even just went on YouTube and searched them, you would find people doing like voice acting readings of them and stuff, but they have no idea who wrote them and who she is. Mm. So a lot of her stories still live on. But anyway, considering her sentence, again, she got a life sentence, which is very stiff. The, the, toughest sentence you can get in Canada but what a lot of people or not a lot of people but what some people theorize is that her crime seemed much more severe because she was able to express herself so effectively if you read the Facebook logs her boyfriend was very much like you know really short sentences humming and hawing about the plan and it was just very vague general statements about shooting people in the mall then when Lindsay would write it was almost like this dark evil poetry she went into so much detail about how she'll feel what she'll say and you you can see that she is able to express herself in that way in the book that she sent the portions of um it's like if i don't know if stephen king went to hell uh, and then came back and started writing more books this is kind of like the thing he would come up with it was it mixed all the elements of her crime in a way that would you know would give you a nightmare so she seemed uh, kind of surprised that the charges she was going to draw were as serious as they really were. Do you, so I guess that leads me to this question. Do you think she would have gone through with it? You know, that's the, kind of the question is, would she have gone through with it or could she have gone through with it are kind of two different things. Would she, based on the way she talks on that episode, she doesn't really seem to feel bad about any of it. And she doesn't seem to express any empathy or remorse. So in talking to her, she strikes me as the kind of person who would have no problem pulling out a gun and shooting a complete stranger. Um, could she have gone through with it is a different story. When when they showed up at the when she showed up at the Halifax airport planning to, you know, have this whole thing set into motion, there was no planning as far as how they would even get to the mall. They didn't have a car. They would have been getting on the bus with their plan was to get on the bus with Molotov Molotov cocktails and, you know, uh, long barrel hunting guns. And, you know, the I just, I don't see, and even the guns that they had, it wasn't like they had automatic weapons. It was a single bullet shotgun where you would shoot once, reload it, and a hunting rifle where they had like 12 bullets or something for. So I don't know if they even would have, I don't know if she would have done it. I don't know if they even could have got to the mall with these things. And even if they did, Lindsay's about, I think she's like five foot two. The Her boyfriend who's now deceased is like 90 pounds. I don't know if anything more than one shot would have rung out if that even have had have happened. But again, even if that did happen and somebody brought a gun into the mall food court and shot, that alone would have changed the city forever. But I just don't see in any circumstances, I don't see this um, this plot being carried out to the extent that she's convicted for. Are you planning on continuing communication with her by way of letter? Like you, like you did, like, are you going to continue being a pen pal? I I hope so. Yeah. Like, cause it, there's still a lot going on. She's appealing her life sentence right now. Uh, not appealing the conviction. She's appealing the sentence uh, of life. Uh, and there's a few grounds for this appeal. One is that her lawyer didn't feel it would be appropriate to put the burden on her to denounce her antisocial beliefs. Like uh, racism is horrible as it is. It's not illegal to feel that way. So 
her her lawyer is arguing that that shouldn't have been considered. And some of the other things that they're arguing is um, there there was no similar case to kind of compare her with when they sentenced her. So they kind of um, compared it more so to a terrorism type thing. And I think they're arguing that. And they're also arguing that uh, her sentence is a lot longer from who will just call her third conspirator. There was one guy who wasn't planning to go into the mall and shoot with her and her boyfriend. He was more so helping them get material and he was going to pick her up at the airport and stuff. He got, I think 10 years. And I think her lawyer felt that she should have had something more comparable with him. But, but yeah, I, I plan to follow it just be, and not only because of like my podcast and these episodes for me, this is one of the major crimes for like my neighborhood, you know, um, th- this mall, like I was at the mall today and yesterday. <laughs> and when I, I'm there at least once a week and have been since then. So I just feel like for whatever reason, I just, this, this crime, I want to see it through, see what, what ends up happening. And if she's willing to communicate with me and keep me up to date with her legal battle and her life behind bars, like I'm interested in that. And there's a bit of safety in it or comfort in it, knowing that she's going to be deported as soon as she's released. So I'm never going to. There's never a risk of me ever having to encounter her or anything like that. Yeah, so I'm yeah, not. Yeah, send her back down here. It. Yeah, I'll have her send her to Wormtown. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, please, then the worm will take her. This uh, this anonymous tip that um, that might have really prevented something awful. Um, do, is there any more on that? Do, does she know who that is? She has theories, um, but basically. Again, the the plan was all put together online between her and her boyfriend, but they weren't making much of a secret about it. They were posting vague hints and, you know, they seemed quite happy to be telling people that they were planning this. Uh, what she thinks is that somebody who knew her boyfriend but not her got wind of the plan and, and decided to call Crime Stoppers, which I don't know if you have that in the States, but it's like an anonymous um, crime tip line. Somebody ca- called Crime Stoppers like the day she was planning to show up here. And what they had said was basically a girl named Lindsay S. will be coming from the Chicago airport to Halifax to meet up with this person. And they're going to go to the mall and shoot people. Um, but Lindsay doesn't know who exactly made the call. But she knows that the information she knows exactly what information they gave to identify her. And what Lindsay had said is it would have been the information that you could find from her Facebook profile if you weren't her friend. So she thinks it's somebody who maybe knew her boyfriend and knew who she was, but wasn't friends with her on Facebook because they kind of gave the police everything from, you, you know what I'm talking about? Like when you visit a Facebook profile of someone, you're not their friend. You can see like where they live and their name in one picture because really that was all they had was very basic info. It was enough to put it together. And, and yeah, it's like a lot of the, the criticisms that are, that are coming are more about like, of course, like in this crime and crimes like it, people like Lindsay who do these things, they seem to want the notoriety. They want people to talk to them, talk about them and, you know, remember them for doing this crazy, horrible thing. So some of the criticism got, I'm getting is, is more like, you know, why would you give her what she wants and, you know, uh, talk about her and, you know, make a video trailer with her voice and all these things for the podcast. And I completely get that criticism. Um, and that's, that's justified, but I think there's, like to just ignore these people and not consider them and talk about them. Like, I don't think, I just don't think that's the answer either. I don't know what the answer is to solve these, you know, huge social problems the world has, but I think just ignoring it 
isn't going to do anything. And again, this is this is a it's a dark but significant piece of history for my city. And what I do on my podcast is try to find these kinds of stories and you know and open them up and show people what's going on inside. So when I had the opportunity to talk directly to Lindsay and get this from her from her mouth, not only was it a good opportunity to learn everything about this individual case, the Valentine's Day massacre in Halifax, but it also, I think, shines a light on, you know, the type of people who get involved in these bizarre subcultures online or who decide to take those steps towards committing a, you know, a mass shooting or school shooting and she um She's very much like a, when you hear her talk, I think she she sounds a lot like some of the other people I've heard who've done these sorts of things. Yeah, you're in a really unique position to put somebody like that on the show. And yes, there will be criticism because people will initially think that you're doing it to, you know, increase your listenership. And it's a juicy story, but it's really rare to get somebody like that to speak comfortably, candidly in a conversation with someone like you. And because you know how to work around certain topics and make her tell the truth without making it uh, exploitative, right? So you said that there's not one thing that you can think of that can solve society's problems, but this is one thing of a larger piece that can solve at least this problem with this type of person. Yeah, we definitely definitely wouldn't be learning about it if it wasn't for this, you know? So I think at least airing her the story and her voice, her own words is valuable so we can learn, potentially try to prevent things like that in the future. Or even just to put them in context. Like when you hear of these events, like the the shooters or the people involved, they come out so enigmatic where it's almost like they're from another world. Like when I first heard about Lindsay, it was this girl from the States who's, she's Asian. She's an Asian white supremacist who's obsessed with Columbine and was coming to Halifax to commit a shooting in the food court of the mall in a city she's never been in. For me, it was just like, you know, who the hell is this person? And like, how could this even, like, how how does this even happen or exist? So in talking to her, it kind of, I think, pulls away a big part of the mystery and just shows you that there there are incredibly troubled people on the internet. And they have a lot of ways to connect with other incredibly troubled people. And, you know, and it's, it's a dangerous place. And that's, you know, that stories like this make me leery of crowds. Yeah, you, you were there that day. And we're one anonymous tip away from not even having this conversation potentially with you. Yeah, possibly. Absolutely. Yeah, that's and nuts. And yeah, and it's like it, it seems like uh, sensational to say that. But it's absolutely true. Like when you read the type of people they were targeting, you know, I'm, I would have fit that. My wife would have fit that. We had our kid with us. It's and even if it wasn't us, if if you're if you were close to something like that happening, I can't even imagine how it would affect me. So even the thought of it, like when I think when I was putting these episodes together and I was thinking what could have happened, like that alone was keeping me up at night. But. Yeah, it's a, it's a messed up world. That's 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 the truth. It almost feels like this story chose you, Jordan. Uh, like no one else could have done uh, the exact same um, project on on this story like you did. You know, having the uh, platform that you do, being the local guy that you are, being the guy who was almost uh, the, you know was actually in the mall yeah, that day. Well, it's it's just like the right place at the right time as far as like storytelling goes. But I think like I think what made me the right person for it 
more so was like open mind open mindedness and just the ability to talk with her. Like I think if if a real journalist went into this, there would have been questions that they would have been compelled to ask that would have turned her away and probably got them hung up on. Yeah, yeah, this is what I'm saying. Yeah. You're you. Yeah. And I just went in as just I'm just some random dude and that was probably put her a bit at ease. And also by the time we even got on the phone, we had already gained trust because it's been, you know, a couple years of the occasional letter and no real journalist would ever and by real journalist I mean like a paid journalist, they would never put that kind of time into a story. So they would never go into an interview like this with that trust and all that. So it just like I, I think it worked out great. And you know, I even got um as much criticism I got as I got, I've received quite a few emails from people who study um, criminal law, political science type stuff. And I got an email just the other day from a, a a doctor in somewhere in the States who's specializes in studying youth crimes and mass murder. And she wrote me this really nice thing explaining like how valuable this interview is for her. And we're planning to connect and, you know, share some background, but People in academia who are whatever it's called that, you know, study these things, they see they see the value in it. I think it's it is controversial, though. So I, I understand the criticism. Well, there you go. The pe- people in academia, the, they find it valuable. I got an email from a doctor, Tim. That's it. You're done. <laughs> that, Dr. You, Jordan. Everyone wins. You're, you've made it. I have a question about her family. Have you spoken with her family or has her family come out publicly to um, give a statement? And if you do get an opportunity to speak with her family how deep will you go into you know that personal life and will you try to find something that might have happened that that created this yeah you know i've i've never spoke to her family i would love to because i'd have a lot of questions for them but they've never spoken to the press and they seem incredibly uncomfortable with um speaking about they're, they're a very troubled daughter. So I, I don't expect to ever hear from them, but I would love to because they, um, during her sentencing, her parents, as well as her grandparents, they wrote letters to the judges, to the judge, basically like pleading for mercy, uh, in, in their sentence in the version of Lindsay that they explained in the letters was very different than the version she described. they in their letters, they described a, a young woman who was, been isolated her whole life, had been bullied, had struggled with her race because she comes from like her dad is Asian and her mom, I think is like Russian. Like apparently she'd had, she kind of struggled with her race, her life, her whole life. So they kind of described this, this version of Lindsay, the version she told me about was completely different. She never struggled with these things. She was never bullied. She was popular. So I would like to talk to them and, you know, and get their version because I'm sure they have a different story. But I don't think I'm. I don't think I'm going to get it from them. If anyone ever does, I don't think it'll be me. Well, it took you how many years to get her on the show, and it, that was unintentional. So maybe just slow play the parents as well, and and you'll you'll get them in maybe five years. Yeah, we'll see. But she, uh, Lindsay, will be back in court uh, this month. She's uh, again appealing the sentence, which I found the timing bizarre that she was willing to talk right now because I can't imagine. Like if you've heard the clips in this episode, I can't imagine that someone's not going to be listening to this uh, in considering her parole because it certainly doesn't, or her, not parole, sorry, her appeal, because it certainly doesn't make her sound uh, like a suitable member of society. She describes it as if she was giving you instructions on how to make a sandwich. Like that is how matter of fact it is. Absolutely. There's no empathy there. She says there's no empathy. But that 
clip in particular about empathy, it's it's important to note she she would never talk about whether or not she has empathy or remorse specific to her crime. When she talked about empathy, it was more so when she was talking about how much she enjoys the Columbine shooting and how she saw it as a positive thing. I asked her, like, do you feel empathy for people who lose their lives in these mass shooting events? And she had said no. And she said something like, it was like, when you consider them, what really do they have to offer the world other than their equally unimpressive children? Yeah, that was like personally offensive, I feel like. Uh, okay, good. I'm glad you felt that way. I felt the same way because you can't just say that about people. You can't just say because I'm in a mall where a, a like a bunch of people are and there's a mass group of people. You can't just say that a, any one of those won't turn into, you know, the, the next Steve Jobs or something or 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 just change something in some way. Yeah. And she wasn't exactly curing cancer in her life either. Exactly. She was she wasn't doing anything. But but again, like and I, that was something I tried to do with this episode is not think about why she was wrong, more so just think about like I'm I'm trying to accept this is how she feels. And I was trying to understand it because every bit of her story, I'm like, you know, that's ridiculous. Like, how could you possibly feel that way? But she does feel that way. So I think it was almost like I had to just get over how stupid and how little sense this all made to try to understand where she was coming from. And in the end, I don't understand where she's coming from she strikes me as somebody who like of course i'm not a psychologist but i think she needs a lot of help yeah uh well thanks jordan i know you got to go um but yeah this is uh, an amazing uh piece of work you you're putting out there so uh just uh, shake that criticism off uh those people they don't know what they're talking about send them our way yeah just listen to the doctors who uh who email you those those uh people uh they're right exactly and uh so so well done awesome well, thanks for having me on the show and I love everything you guys do. I see you as role models uh, your work on missing Mora Murray and now crawl space I see that as some of the high watermarks in this whole thing so when I'm doing this stuff I'm kind of sometimes I'm Tim sometimes I'm Lance but you're you're more Lance usually I try to be Lance yeah yeah. <laughs> Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts.